data now a weapon? Is it the way forward? Is data a window into our future? Is it the new oil? Is data a geopolitical game changer? Is it a friend or foe to American democracy? How do we know? How do we know anything? Welcome to Data Reveal. Hey, Mark Fideli here. Before we jump into this week's episode with Ian Mitchell from The Noble, wanted to, again, step back and offer a couple thoughts as, as you dive in with us. Ian has incredible energy and vision, and his story of how he came to focus on the human element of financial intelligence and financial crimes is, like so many of our prior guests, a really inspiring story a really motivating story and a really strategic story of how people with lots of data, again, the theme of this show is bringing data together. Well, human crimes are a way that people could come together to look at financial data, share that data, and get to insights faster to remove or reduce these kinds of crimes. And a shared infrastructure for that is something that requires vision, but it also requires boots on the ground collaboration. And Ian has done that. So as you listen and think about where there are pockets of innovation, pockets of work being done in financial crimes, every industry area, every functional area, be it finance, HR, cybersecurity, physical security, operations, there are pockets of great work, pockets of data not yet brought together. And this is an example of how someone with vision and passion can do that. And I get an energy boost when I listen to Ian that I hope you get to. With that, let's jump in. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Data Reveal podcast. I'm your host, Mark Fideli, along with co-hosts Courtney Hastings and Andrew Churchill, and we're joined by our special guest, Ian Mitchell. Welcome, everyone. Hey, thanks, Mark. Thrilled to be here. Thanks, Ian. Thank you for the invitation. Well, we, um, as always, like to start personal but a very impersonal disclaimer for everyone, if you've not heard this, uh, this is a Click-sponsored podcast, but the opinions shared are our own and don't necessarily reflect Click or the corporation or the direction. With that, Ian, I learned recently through a mutual friend about the Noble, and the very first thing that struck me were the data points on your site. 25 million people in human trafficking $63 billion lost in unemployment scams in just 2020, 25 plus million child exploitation images found, I guess, on hard drives, and then elder abuse and other data points I know you guys track as well. As we get started, do you mind introducing yourself, your background, and how in the world do you deal with problems of that scale? Yeah. So again, just thank you for letting me be here. So, you know, what I would tell you is, is the way I look at these problems is it's the human element. And that's the difference between the problems you listed out before. We call them human crime at the Noble. And I think that that's the journey I've been on personally and professionally for the last uh, several years. The problems that are stated and the metrics are stated in a lot of respects are understated. And I think one of the biggest things that I find the need to reinforce is that these are all problems that all of us can get involved in solving, especially us in the financial crimes world. So I am uh, I am a 20-year, 25-year, almost 25-year now, uh, fraud fighter. 
I was uh, the head of fraud at several institutions, started right out of college, got into it, didn't plan on it, was planning on getting into television of all things, and, and just ended up um, at the age of 28, I was, I was uh, a GE leading fraud across North and South America. I mean, just a, a wonderful career, but I've been fighting fraud most of my life. And then I, um, I'd like to say retired early. I didn't really retire, but I left banking early, and uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But I, I moved in and started The Noble a couple of years ago, really focused on the human crime, focused on the human being. And and I'm just a firm believer in all the work I've done that the financial crimes world, those in banking, law enforcement, truly are are where a lot of hope sits for, uh, for a lot of the victims of these human crimes. Also, my career, I guess, worthy of mentioning, I before I joined the Noble full-time, just about uh, five or six months ago, I was the head of the fraud practice for PwC as a partner there. Um, so I've been in the consulting world for a little while, but primarily sitting at the banks. So I had a really great career on the fraud side. Wow, that's uh, compelling. And, and it's hard for the mind to get wrapped around those kind of data points. Do you have some stories? I mean, I, I'll just say briefly for context, our mutual contact, I, I think, you know, the, the financial intelligence world has to operate in a degree of, of secrecy and yet manages privacy with you know, sort of absolute conviction about that. And that's one of the things I've taken away. You know, 2007, 2008, I led an effort. I don't know what you would call it, sort of an executive roundtable level effort between U.S. government and private sector, large bank, uh, financial intelligence, any money laundering, some fraud, you know, sort of executives under the USA Patriot Act post 9-11. We've talked a lot about 9-11 on this show and people that have, have, you know, had their careers shaped by that. And that was one of the more enriching experiences, understanding the ins and outs of the financial intelligence world. I have some interesting stories, but I'm hesitant to bring up any of them. I'm sure you have some amazing ones. Can you just sort of, for those who are uninitiated in sort of financial intelligence, what that means? I mean, we know the intelligence community deals in secrets, right? We know financial banks and you know financial organizations banks hedge funds etc deal in data and people's you know sort of transactions but there's this unique intersection of using the sort of the tools and and the capabilities of the intelligence world to find fraudsters money laundering terrorist activities etc and it's an unthank what's the word I'm looking for it's a job that doesn't get as much thanks and credit as it deserves so as you've seen that unfold what are some stories that stand out to you or what are the the things that you, when you're talking to audiences that don't know what that world's like, how do you get their mind wrapped around what that is so that these data points start to, you know, really come to life in terms of the human stories that you deal in? Yeah. So one of the big things that I think, well, I mean, all of us on, on a personal side are aware of what financial institutions do to keep us protected from a fraud perspective. Think of your credit card, all the work and the analytics and the machine learning and technology that's gone in for decades to share information across banks at these networks to look at anomalous payment activity in what's called neural networks. I mean, these are these are advanced machine learning, advanced analytics that have been used for decades to detect credit card fraud. And that's a great example. I love to go back to this. This is what a lot of my teams have done is optimize these engines, optimize these rule sets to detect anomalous behaviors. Just think of, you know, even dollar transactions in the middle of the night. Well, I used to think they were just credit cards and I'm going to go to, that was one of the indications I had of human trafficking. But you start looking at these anomalous behaviors and you start saying, you know, is this jewelry purchase, Ian? 
Has he ever made this many purchases on airline? These anomalous, what they, what they don't realize is behind the scenes, they're profiling all of us on what normal and good behavior looks like. And that's something that has always been of the norm for me. We also do it at the credit bureaus. So the amount of infrastructure, I came through the risk management world at banks and I started in credit risk. It was far too boring for myself, but I learned a lot, cut my teeth on the credit acquisition side and trying to decide, is this uh, individual likely to repay their loan? What, what's the best strategy for collections? And the type of analytics that have been used even longer than that to profile and use credit history to decide, is this a credit worthy applicant um, is tremendous. What we've done is taken a lot of those data points and those analytics and move them into the fight of fraud. Prior to this, though, fraud was really cops and robbers investigators. I mean, it was people claiming fraud and, and investigators looking at, you know, trying to manually look for trends. And what we've really had to do over the last several decades because of the attack vectors, because of the, the digitalization, the cyber components of fighting fraud, the amount of data sharing, the amount of infrastructure that's being leveraged globally around devices identity, authentication, all these types of fraud that we've had to fight has really accelerated the technologies that financial services are using on a daily basis to prevent losses for the banks. Most of the fraud we talk about manifests as end to end as losses for the banks in the form of fraud loss, and they can recover some of it. But for the most part, um, there's a lot of it that isn't recoverable. So those losses end up creating operational teams, investments, all those kind of things. And what I've seen in the financial crime space, to use that term broadly, as we've started becoming aware because of the Patriot Act, as we started becoming aware of the money laundering, the terrorist financing, the other types of financial crimes that happen through and around the banking system, there's been similar investments in fighting money laundering, similar investments in the cyber issue, that that issue is tremendous, that we're all dealing with. So that cyber risk issue, the kind of technology that's being used on a daily basis to fight cyber threats is blows my mind. I, I've worked with a lot of very intelligent people on the cyber front, and I'm just so, I learn something from that group all the time. So that one aspect has been really interesting to watch mature. It went from information security to now large teams at all these information, all these banks that um, basically fight cyber threats. But the AML, the anti-money launder team has largely been compliance, you know, really meeting requirements by regulators mm -hmm. to detect and prevent money laundering and terrorist financing. What we've called it, what I call you know, all these groups are financial crimes groups. But what I've seen recently is there is a the use cases like these human crime use cases and such are requiring us to work together to share infrastructure to start looking at data differently that excites me but but there's a lot that each of these groups whether it's fraud aml the any money laundering team cyber teams have strengths i didn't mention the strengths of the money laundering team by the way their customer risk rating customer scoring their use of intelligence the programs the the, the way that they've you know, built programs around the use of data, the permissible use of data, how you have the data quality. I mean, I think the fraud teams could for sure learn from that. What I've seen is all these strengths are coming together to really fight these growing threats of financial crimes that we've seen just increase exponentially through the COVID. Um, that's highlighted some of the ones that have been lost in the, in the mix that have been forgotten about. These human crimes are great use cases. So those facets of fighting financial crime are robust at each of the banks. And I think we're learning how to work together. And that's a, been a big theme over the last five or so years. One last question, then really throw it open for the group, which is the noble itself. I want to just 
give you a chance to tell us a little bit more about that. It's a nonprofit, so you've been doing this for five or six months. It's a different kind of organizational structure than a bank or a consulting firm or a software mm-hmm. firm. What makes the Noble different in this sort of connection between the human crimes use cases and then working together to share infrastructure, share data? You've described it to me a little bit, but I'm so fascinated by that, and I'm, I'm curious if you could sort of break that open a bit. Well, let me maybe go back to, and I think what I just mentioned about the different groups of financial crimes tease up the noble very, very easily. I got to start at the beginning a little bit and it'll be quick. But again, I spent in one facet of fighting financial crime being the fighting the fraud, measuring, balancing customer experience, balancing fraud losses, optimizing revenue. That's what I was measured at. I did it at a high level, but I burned out. I had to deal with some regulatory issues and, and, and I just wore the tread off my tires, I like to describe it as, and I was done. I moved to the mountains of Chattanooga, Tennessee, was completely done. Then I met this gentleman named Matt Friedman, who spent several decades at the United Nations fighting human trafficking, met him at a happenstance meeting down in Atlanta, Georgia, and I was growing out my beard, focused on recording music and focused on writing books. I was done with the world of fighting fraud. I got offered to be the head of fraud at a couple large banks. I said, you know, no, thank you. I'm done. I was going to go work at Walmart as a greeter before anything else. But Matt shared with me at at a coffee, he said, Ian, do you realize that even dollar transactions in the middle of the night might be the buying and selling of people? And I started remembering what I used to call them in in the fraud space was collusive merchants. And we used to report them. We used to figure that if there was even dollar transactions at a, a nail salon or a massage parlor that basically they they were you know maybe merchants that were eventually going to commit fraud on us but we didn't think for a second that it was actually human beings being bought right and for a service and that just wrecked me and over the next three weeks i went from not wanting anything to do with financial crimes at all to feel so compelled that i maybe missed something that i was just so busy trying to meet regulatory obligations so busy trying to meet my fraud loss numbers so busy trying to to build a competitive business. And those are all good things to do. I don't wanna say that they're not. I came up through the analytics space. I love data. I was a SaaS programmer. I mean, I, I just, that's my mind. And I think that it was a great job, but I realized that I missed the essence of the human being behind these transactions. So what I did, Mark, is, is I realized that I was sitting at the American Bankers Association Financial Crimes Conference in December of 2018. And I'm on the General Assembly. To my left was the head of compliance for Chase. Um, I had a couple other kind of senior executives, and we were talking about the convergence of those areas I mentioned before, money laundering, cyber, and fraud, and how we need to work together. And I remember looking at th- out at three or 4,000 financial crime fighters that attended this conference, and I realized if we could wake them up, because there's hundreds of thousands of them across the world at financial, at, at solution providers like yourselves, at law enforcement and at banks all day long, answering the phone when people have credit card fraud, right? If we could wake them up and we could get them to understand that even dollar transactions in the middle of the night may be human beings. If we could wake them up to the fact that, you know, kids are being live streamed on, if we could wake them up that scams, even though there's not losses for banks, that scams could actually be, you know, people's hopes, dreams, and life savings being lost, you know, it will change the game. And we'll actually have better technology, better people, a better trained person than all the bad actors put together. We use consortiums, we share information, we have better compliance. I mean, all the reasons I told you to get excited about and hopeful, I realized that we need to wake them up. And so that's when on that stage, I got the idea for the noble. I used to say the most noble profession in banking is fighting fraud and financial crimes. I used to tell my teams that for years. And I realized that they're the noble. So the noble, I started 
in 2019, the nonprofit, The Noble, The Noble with a K, K-N-O-B-L-E. And the reason I put the K in there is it stands for Knights, like Knights of the Round Table. It's the best part of the old Knights thing. I know there's a lot of bad history there, but basically I realized that our mission of the nonprofit is to awaken, equip, and deploy these noble people into the fight of fighting human crime. And that's what we do. So we don't have any data sets ourselves. Our goal is not to build anything that other people build, but our goal is to be a part of people that want to get involved in making the world a better place, that want to, that this topic resonates with them, get them connected with each other, to train, equip them. We just launched, we just announced the Super Bowl project that we're getting. I think we have over 30 banks already signed up. It's only been announced for a week to go and put detection rules in place for the Super Bowl. Now, there's no indication that in Super Bowls that there's an increase of trafficking. But what a great excuse, what a catalyst to get 30 banks, half of more than half probably don't have any detection rules for trafficking in place, to work together to agree to put something in place. What we're trying to do is awaken those and get those that are already in the fight aware of the human, and then let them bring that back to their business, right? Because if they can monetize it, fine. But if they can actually work together in a non-competitive environment, to actually like start being mindful of the human element, I think that changes everything. And that's the mission of The Noble. That's why we do what we do. We're a network. We have over 250 organizations involved today. I think we have over 1,100 financial crime fighters in all facets from banks to law enforcement. We have law enforcement councils with the heads of all the, most of the major law enforcement agencies. The whole goal is nothing other than to connect everybody together, to challenge the way we do things to, to think strategically about solutions and tactically about learning how to do things differently. We have to innovate in how we share data. We have to innovate in how we use data. We have to innovate in how we investigate. We have to, and so we can't operate in just the parameters of losses, of what am I meeting to meet compliance? We can't operate in just the construct of, this is how I've moved data before. We can't operate in, in, in this unconnected fashion that we're in today in some facets. We have to leverage what fraud people do well, which is share data. We have to leverage what cyber people do well, which is understand hidden threats and, and leverage advanced infrastructure. We have to do what compliance people and AML people do well, which is risk rate customers, understand what to do with a customer that's in, in, in a due diligence that is in a very tricky situation and to build programs that can stand the test of, of working across interbank, right? And we have to work better with law enforcement working with law enforcement should needs to be more dynamic than it is. It shouldn't just be calling law enforcement when you are, you know, you lose a million dollar wire. It shouldn't be just calling law enforcement when you have one case to escalate. We have to, we have to find a new and better way to work with law enforcement there. And what I want to tell you also, and before I end, I know I went a little bit longer on this one is there are a lot of great organizations that have been doing this great work far longer than the noble has. I just, it's been exponential and increased for us. And I got to say thank you to everybody that supported us. But there are a lot of banks that have just been doing this for a long time. I could list them off. And, and, I, and I would, if I did, I'd be afraid that I'd be missing some. But I mean, example, Scotia and US Bank. And, and there, there have been banks that have been doing, leading the way for a long time. And organizations that have like Verifin and companies that have been around thinking about things differently for a long time. But we have to bring this globally. Financial services has common infrastructure to process payments, to make payments, to monitor for fraud, to monitor for money laundering. And those are opportunities to leverage and scale, right? And so that, that to me is where the noble's about. And I know I covered a lot of ground, but we're really trying to bring that network effect 
to both to all the professionals in their day jobs to just let them bring it back to where they work, right? And be a part of bring meaning and purpose. That's the big thing for me. In the end, that's what I get to do every day. I, I wake up every morning not going to the grind. I wake up every morning realizing that I'm a part of something greater, part of an ecosystem of people that want to make the world a better place. Um, I, I'm not just stopping fraud losses. I, I do that. I have a for-profit business that focuses on stopping fraud. But honestly, my heart, my passion, and the reason I wake up every day is because I've realized behind all of these transactions are human beings. And I have that opportunity to approach all the problems that way. And so mm. that's, that's how the noble, that's where the noble came from. Wow. I love the, the passion and that, you know, that connection. I think, you know, a lot of, you know, the things when our, when our team talks about the, the work that we do with federal government, it's, it really is about that the ability to, to bring about change, make a difference, uh, improve lives, safety. As a target for fraud, I had a bunch of conversations uh, recently about what to me seems like an arms race in defeating it. It kind of, the banks and the financial institutions are one thing, but me, like you said, that the individual unsecured by, uh, by any algorithms and tools, I'm sitting here with a telephone I can pick up and daily, I mean, uh, two weeks ago, I fielded three calls over a period of two days from the exact same fraudulent call center Every single one coming up under USIS, the United States Uniform Health Service. And I was just amazed at what was going on. So I have I've got a sort of idea to throw out there. How's this arms race going when they seem to have almost fraud as a service? There's no way these companies are devising these things on their own. They're clearly consuming capabilities that are being created by, you know, technology platforms that enable what they do to happen. And then two what are your thoughts on the other side of the human element? They have the you have the victim, and then you have the perpetrator who, in themselves, may be a victim. My wife always gives me a hard time because I like to have awful conversations with the guys that call me and attempt to tell me that <laughs> Amazon has done this or that. And she says they're just punching in; they're really just collecting a paycheck. This sort of you know organizing of probably innocent humans into this fraudulent activity. And I'm probably talking about the most benign of that that's happening out there. So, yeah. Andrew, I, I, love, I love the points you're making. And, and let me give it an illustration. This blew my mind. You know, so, so I've gone full time to the Noble since July uh, when I left PwC. But I had this hypothesis that all these financial crimes are interconnected. And so I went on this I don't know. I, I've talked to every law enforcement person I could find. And again, I'm, we're connected to a lot. So it's easier than it sounds for a lot of us, but it, but it was it was amazing. So I was talking to them and I was I had this hypothesis that the fraud, the scams were all leading to human trafficking and, and, and these other worse crimes. It wasn't just an isolation. And the COVID scam increase that we've seen that's exponential. And remember, scams are a different type of fraud. These What's different about fraud and scams is that people are being duped into willingly sending money because they believe they have a girlfriend somewhere because they want a puppy, right? Because they're, because they are, they need a job. They're preying on the vulnerable, right? That's the whole point of human crime is we're all vulnerable. Well, well, so what, what you just said is really interesting. These criminal enterprises along the way, there was a couple cases that were highlighted and, and highlighted this for me. And it was a couple of agents explained a couple cases like this for me. This was one example in particular. They saw, I, I'm going to get these numbers wrong, but let's just say 70 accounts where scams, business email compromise, that's commercial scams, business 
think that this wire is legitimate. Consumer scams, romance scams, puppy scams, little tiny small person-to-person payment scams, all consolidated at 70 banks. They basically used those bank accounts as mules and they consolidated down to, I think it was seven banks. Those seven consolidated into a handful and those handful consolidated down to money was wired to Africa to a ring that was trafficking in human beings and drugs. It's the interconnectivity because along the way we Mm. measure scams and frauds in isolation. We don't realize interconnectivity. The crazy part to go back to Andrew, the point you're talking about is there's enrichment along the way. And what we saw in all these COVID um, highlights of frauds, we saw this person bought a Lamborghini with COVID funds. This person bought a Bentley. This person did this, right? And those are, that did happen. There's enriching along the way. But the thought is, is that these mule accounts, there's money being siphoned to go to these criminal enterprises. So along the way, there's unknowing and knowing mules. There's victims that are having their accounts being used as mules. There's people that are vulnerable and they just need money. And and again, they're not the mastermind behind these criminal acts. But at the same time, they're being duped and they're vulnerable too. There are though, and, and I'm, I'm not the law enforcement person. This is what I used to tell my old boss who was really high up in the, in the FBI. He knows really what's going behind the scenes. I was at a bank. I know the lens there. And I know stories that the people that are far more in touch with this tell me. And so I'm told by these people that are seeing the worst of the worst and the evils of the evil, that there are really insidious criminal rings behind this. And, And that's what we can't forget. Along the way, though, there are a whole lot of victims and vulnerable people being taken advantage of. And so I think that's the part we have to understand. One more point on human trafficking, because I, I want to make sure that I make this point just on what human trafficking is. Human trafficking, also known as modern slavery globally, is made up of a couple things. The two biggest buckets, though, and again, I'm not the expert here. There are a lot of amazing, wonderful people who work with the noble, like Heather Fisher and, 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 and Barry Koch, people that have just come in and educated me, right? I was the fraud guy that all of a sudden, since 2019, was awakened or, until I met Matt Friedman. But there's labor trafficking and sex trafficking. The estimations that I've heard are 75% of all the trafficking or modern slavery is around labor. And the 25% that gets a lot of headlines is around sex trafficking. And so we have to remember too that I don't know, we're still trying to figure out how financial services can be involved in fighting labor trafficking, but we on an individual basis can all be a part of fighting labor trafficking. It means use, buy your clothes from organizations that don't use forced labor. Try to make decisions like I bought an HVAC system and I was trying to decide between the two largest companies and I did my research and one of them had an anti-trafficking statement. And I chose, I paid $2,000 more for that carrier brand. It was actually the carrier brand, but that, that, that supplier than the other one because they had a statement. So choosing as consumers to fight it, let alone doing some risk scoring and understanding supply chains and trying to be, you know, do due diligence about these commercial arrangements we're getting and relationships we're getting into. But those distinctions on trafficking, online sexual exploitation is another type of insidious evil thing. And I think we don't think about this as much, but since COVID happened, the online sexual exploitation of children has gone up exponentially. We hear that from law enforcement. We hear that from organizations like NICMIC, National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, an amazing organization. They basically are telling us what's happened is, is while people can't go to the Philippines or other countries to abuse in person, what they're doing is doing like live streaming, kind of like what happens every day. We're on these, these calls. I won't name any of the platforms because they're, they're being taken advantage of too. But, but basically what we have a project called Project Umbra, where we're actually, we have shown banks, we have five banks participating in Project Umbra. 
And with the help of Scotiabank, we're actually identifying that basically you can detect online sexual exploitation. Banks can. They can get involved in this. You wouldn't think they can, but they can get involved in this. And I only bring up that example because just because we think that we can't take part in making the world a better place on any of these human crime topics, scams, like we all personally and professionally can be involved. Talk to your family. Andrew, you brought up a couple cases. We're all getting hit by an increase in scams. The Identity Theft Resource Center is a great, if you don't know them, ITRC, look them up. Another great nonprofit. They have an 800 number that you or anybody you know can call to say, is this email legitimate? So we, we're all human beings. So we can understand that human factor of how we can get involved in, in fighting the fight. But then all of us, especially organizations like yours, can go to market with a perspective saying, I care about the human element. And I want to encourage my, my clients and my customers to also make it easy for them to get involved in the fight, right, from a corporate or from a solution perspective. As the mother of two young girls, I think the uh, sexual exploitation is something that probably haunts me a little bit more than it should. But you did a great job of telling telling us what we can do as individuals to help. But maybe you can talk a little bit more about some of the Nobles initiatives. I yeah. was on your website earlier today and noticed that you have a bunch focused on technology and data. So could you talk a little bit about those? Absolutely can. So, so you know, again, our, our goal is to leverage what's already there as much as we possibly can. So through our partner network, we have we have wonderful corporate sponsors and memberships. Um, we have a lot of great organizations that support us. And so what we're doing is trying to work with these solution and technology providers to build in red flags, build in scenarios, start to actually put in packaging of these types of human crimes so that they can offer it now to their customers, like I was talking about. So we have projects that basically are doing that around trafficking. I mentioned Project Umbra that's doing around that around online exploitation of children. The Super Bowl project that just that just got announced, sponsored by Prove, that's going to do that around the Super Bowl to basically go and, and, and do that. We're going to try to create some similar project, again, as a catalyst around every major event or the ones that make sense. So the goal is, is to try to bring information sharing, intelligence sharing, data sharing, to the masses. There are a lot of great ways. Um, there's regulation 314A, 314B specifically that allows financial institutions to share information. Um, a lot of great organizations out there that help facilitate that, the NCFTA and Verapin, a lot of public and private kind of organizations that help that. But the goal, Courtney, what we're trying to do is, is really challenge and like I said, innovate. So we have several working groups underway right now that are trying to innovate on how can we share information at scale. The Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, um, known as FinCEN, came out with some advisory or um, guidance last year. It was wonderful. We had been, and they basically encouraged institutions to start sharing information outside of one-off investigative cases, which is done very well. And so that's where we have a lot of conversations with technology providers and banks themselves trying to encourage them to find ways to share information at scale like we do on the fraud side, for example. And so it is possible to share information. So, so we have several groups that are, that are meeting to try to think through that. We have groups that are also trying to identify red flags of labor trafficking, of sex trafficking. And the goal is, is in our membership. So we are, we are a members only model for, for a couple of good reasons. One, we mapped out 
all of the, with the help of another organization, we mapped out all the areas where financial services is potentially involved in the illicit massage business, where sex trafficking is happening around massage parlors. And it's a great project. It was a lot of unbelievably intelligent organizations put a lot of great assets in there. We mapped out all these areas of risk, but we have a hard time sharing it because we don't want this information to get in the hands of the bad actors. So in January 10th, we're launching the Member Center. And it's basically this member-only kind of construct where we can share red flags, insights, share, you know, just find a way to share this intelligence amongst the financial services community in a safe way, not to share PII, not to share specifically individual case information, to really try to share scenarios, red flags, and innovation. That's the great thing about the Noble. And I'll, I'll just say, all of our initiatives are non-competitive. So we actually have competitors sitting shoulder to shoulder and saying, you know what? I'll make money in this area, but I want to add my bean to the hill, to, to the pile of beans, and maybe we can feed the, feed the world together, right? Like right. That's, what they're, they're, that's what they're doing. And so it's been an amazing neutral ground. And we, we, tr- we continue to try to preserve that with all the organizations we partner with. That's awesome. So when I think about the federal community specifically, it's not always as far along in certain areas and it's further along in, in some other areas. So you mentioned sort of the, the anti-money laundering community, the cyber community have different tools, different ways of looking at things. Sort of one of our ins- inspirations for this podcast is a book by the name of uh, Turning Data into Wisdom by Kevin Hannigan. And that really talks about cognitive diversity, different perspectives, sort of beating on each other's assumptions to get to that aha moment faster. And if you use data plus cognitive diversity, theoretically over time, people working together can go further faster than the bad guys because Mm -hmm. there's not trust, right? It's sort of one of the virtuous cycles in nature and economics that, that systems working together and sharing information. So here's my question. People don't trust each other because they don't trust that their information being shared is going to be protected. It won't be marketed or resold. There's a, a PR element to this that's probably as high a level as, uh, you know, top political official, maybe even the president needs to have the message of, look, we need to share data so that in these secure ways, we could get ahead of sex trafficking, human crime. We have the data, we have the tools, we have the infrastructure. Is that something that you think needs to happen to turn the corner? Does it need to be a federal, financial, high-level federal, as well as sort of, you know, where we sit, we're more humble than dealing with political appointees all the time. These are rank-and-file people doing you know, the Lord's work, really. I mean, I, I don't mind saying that. But, you know, what that means is when no one's looking, they're pushing the buttons, they're making the phone calls, pulling the levers to get the systems of government working for the American people, and they don't get the credit that they deserve. So that's where we tend to do our work with those people. They don't even know about a lot of these resources that are available. So do you have to go grassroots to them? Do you have to go to the top and you know, phone a friend all the way up at the highest level through the lobbyists? Like, how do you get the federal side tied into this? Because I think that's what, those are elected officials. That's when you can get into the privacy and the other things and, and be more transparent. Whereas financial, it's still the assumption is profit motive. How do you, I don't know, I probably said three questions in yeah, one, but I'm so just thinking out loud. I've got at least two answers for you. And one, I want to start with a story. You asked for stories and this just broke my heart. This was not something that happened through the noble. It was something that was told to me early on, there was, there's a bank that I was told, you know, that there's, there's a solution provider out there that offers data to detect trafficking. 
and a bank piloted this data. And um, when the bank went and piloted it, they identified, let's just say, 10 trafficking rings. They didn't think they would have anything, but they identified 10 trafficking rings. They got scared and they shut it off. Mm. Wow. And why did they get scared? Well, they got scared of two two reasons. And I, I this happens all day long with scams. I can point to so many banks that have gotten in trouble for just following the law on Reg E related to reimbursing customers on scams. So so why did they get scared? They got scared of two two reasons. One, they got scared of one regulator regulators coming and slapping them around saying, How come you're banking traffickers? When this was something unknown and and honestly it was like new intelligence. It was a construct where they can potentially, and I don't know what their KYC processes were and all this, like, but the scenario is that if they decide they want to start cleaning their act of and do something better, they got scared of one, regulators coming in, whatever, finding them, beating them up, whatever it is. And I don't want to say regulators are bad. It's not what I'm intentioning, but they're scared of that. And then they're scared of the public finding out that they were banking traffickers. So what does that do? It creates an environment where maybe it's better to be was it plausible deniability or ignorance or whatever that right right like and yep. that, that to me that broke my heart because i have been in banks and i know what it's like having faced and in, been in situations where finding out a bank didn't file a sar for 14 years and having to deal with regulators in the heat right. of the moment and trying to avoid fines and all that. i know what that's like and i understand the concern and the risk but this is where we get to is i don't know that that's a good enough response and i think that i have met so many amazing people, even at, at banks, in law enforcement. Um, we have some quasi-regulators that we're involved with, both in Canada. There is such a groundswell of people that want to do good. Solution yeah. providers that are motivated by this, that we, if we have to figure this out, we can share data. FinCEN said we can do this. So what we need to do is figure out the right type of policy approach to allow banks to not be financially motivated. Like if we allow them to put in these programs, detect this stuff and do the right thing, we have to celebrate it as a culture. And it's hard to do this because there's a lot of wrong things going on because of all right. kinds of bad reasons, but we have to create that and it can be misused. Now, I do want to say something. I've got this idea that I'm going to be launching next year and it's called the Noble Accord. Mm. And, that's, and that's what this is. It is, I'm hoping that banks will come together and saying, we're coming together. There's no teeth in it. But basically saying, we want to put in detection, we want to train our retail branch employees on how to detect elder abuse, human trafficking scams. Mm -hmm. We want to train our detection analysts in fraud. We want to put in detection. So, so it's going to happen one of two ways. The government's going to have to come and mandate it, which I think there's so many wonderful people that I don't believe from what I see and all the people we interact with. I think, I don't know that they need to, if we just allow mm -hmm. them to actually, so safe harbor exists, right? We have to go and make sure that as we expand Safe Harbor, I'm going to get somebody's going to get tell me I'm wrong about my terminology here. I get corrected all the time, but we have a Safe Harbor for filing SARS. Mm -hmm. We have to go and I think communicate to them that it's okay. Let's start doing this, fighting this evil a little differently, and encourage them and facilitate them and honestly like hold their hand through as they clean up some of this stuff. I think that's what we're going to have to do. I've oversimplified a very complex thing that a lot of much smarter people that I are involved, but that's what we're trying to do with the noble is try to expand safe Harbor to allow banks to not have to be scared about doing the right thing. Yeah. What I want to do is I'm so compelled by this and I feel like we've scratched the tip of a very big iceberg that connects back to some other themes, which, which I'll talk about really briefly. I'd like to make this the beginning of a series of episodes and in here at the data reveal podcast, we follow the reveals, right? So when things come up in the conversations, 
Those are the threads we pull on. We literally make decisions about the show in real time on the show because it's fun. And that's the nature of investigation, right? So, I mean, it's not just shoot from the hip. We have our values and we have our priorities. And that's actually a model of how you navigate in digital world today. I think that's true. I've done my homework on that. Uh, Won't get into the details, but I think agile leadership requires quick response. So what you're saying is you're going to create a narrative with the noble around sort of this forward-leaning, sharing-first mentality that becomes a sort of a cross-corporate culture. So across financial cultures that are otherwise focused on the bottom line, there's this human element that we share. So to do that, you have to sort of continue to bang on that drum, which which I love. And we're so excited to hear this, to learn about it. Now we're getting enlisted in a way, sharing the message. I think the theme that stands out to me is you've heard of the great resignation. So baby boomers in the government are retiring. Millennials, Gen Xers are moving up. The new generation, some call them homelanders, some call them Gen Z. It's that group of digital natives who expect the tools that they use as consumers to be there at their job, to be there if they're going to work as federal employees. So if the baseline were set at the level of the new hire, which there needs to be millions of new hires, you could use the backfilling of the great resignation, the new blood coming in who want a mission, a vision focus. If they're going to do the work of government and not just go out and make a buck, they want to be the facilitators, the doers of that. And FinCEN is one of the most important federal agencies that sit at the crossroads of the financial world and the federal world, the investigative world. Who, If you could have a conversation with, with sort of one or two people or I'll even say it this way, if you could sit down with, I don't know, niece or nephew, your kids, somebody young coming into the workforce, and this was their starting point. Look, here's a generation that can walk in and demand this as a condition of their employment. I'm going to get involved in this or else I'm not going to work here. Is that what it's going to take? Because I think everyone, there's a cynicism that we all have, like, okay, I'm just going to go and do my job. And this is, this is we're going to wrap up here because I think I want to end on this high note. And then no pun intended, notes. I think we want to hear some music. If you, uh, if, if you, I know you have a side hustle of being a singer-songwriter. I think that's sort of a way to maybe even roll into the holidays and think about what's up ahead going into a new year. It's been hard this last few years. Without vision and mission, sort of things just grind to a halt, right? People just do, like they burn out, like you said. What do we do for these young people? How do we inspire them? This seems absolutely worthy of their best efforts, of what would really inspire and motivate them, the noble, right, to be part of that. How do you get them started in this when they're just at the bottom floor, so to speak? I'm, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm an eternal optimist. I have I've a high school student that volunteered for the noble as an intern last summer, and I'm now going to speak to her entire high school class um, in a couple months. I'm going to sing mm. for them and talk about this topic, a life worth living, living Love a life it. of purpose. And I will tell you, for some reason, there are hundreds of thousands of financial crime fighters around the world that don't realize that they can live a life of purpose every single day. And so what I think is, and this is, I'm excited about this. So this is the view of the great resignation. I guess I'm one of them because I left 
a great company <laughs> in June and a great job saying that I want to spend every day trying to live a life of purpose. Now, you can do that in a for-profit enterprise. I just got off the phone with mm-hmm. long, one of the largest payment providers in the world right before this call. And they are there. I'm going to speak to all of them and hopefully sing to them about basically living a life of purpose and finding the way to fight human crime and making that connection. So what we need to do, and this is what we're, we're done just living for mortgages and, mm-hmm. and car payments and iPhones because all those are going up in price anyway. What we need to do is you can live a life of purpose and make money. They're not mutually exclusive. It was taught to me in my generation that it was, you know, take the safe job. And I think what we need to realize now is, no, the world needs us. The victims need us mm. to not be safe and to go and speak up and say, I want to wow. live a life of purpose. And I think that's the part where eternal optimist, that is it. So I am going to sing you a couple songs <laughs> and I'm going to sing you not the full songs, but I want to share two songs with you. The one is about living that life of purpose. Beautiful. I don't know if you can hear me. And um, Sounds great. And then the next one um, is in a little bit of encouragement to all of my fellow financial crime fighters. Can you hear the guitar? Is that okay? Sounds great. Okay. This is called Old Dirt Road. I moved to the mountain three years ago. I was all done with the man I used to know. All washed up, I had done my time. Paid my dues, made it out just fine. This is a song about a man that could rise from the ashes, still do some good. Find a new passion down the old dirt road and make a new life. I swore that day I would not go back. Nothing gonna change the cold hard fact. Been burned up and broken on down. My mind was spent and my passion left town. This is a song about a man that could rise from the ashes, still do some good. Find a new passion down the old dirt road and make a new life, life worth living. This is a song about a man that could rise from the ashes, still do some good. Find a new passion down the old dirt road and make a new life. That was the I'm one not about crying. Me. Andrew's <laughs> crying. <laughs> <laughs> that was where I finally had enough. I was just, uh, and this next one is I'm Not Done Yet. And this is a, a song. I put it on um, um, a video. Where can, a, they, where can people find this real quick if they're out there looking after this? Oh, and like, I, I need more. Where do they, where Spotify, do they go? Spotify, Amazon, Ian Mitchell. Um, this recent song I released was called Another Dirt, Another Road. Um, I've been writing a lot of road songs, I guess. But That's this song right. is called great. I'm Not Done Yet. And this is about a song that I wrote. I did a video for this. Um, you can find this actually. Um, connect with me on LinkedIn, and I'll share it with you. But basically, this is a, this is just encouraging all those in the heat of the battle to not give up because it is so easy to give up right now. It's so easy to say, you know what? I'm tired of working and being on video after video after video call. Or and it's so and so. This is one of those. Um, I just get to a moment where I realize that if I tap out now, because remember, I already retired once. I'd remind myself why I was doing this. And I don't know how long I am gonna be. 
don't know how many years I got left. The past will not define me, I am here for a purpose. I am not done yet. I am not done yet. I am not done yet. Long as his body has a breath, I am not done yet. We are not done yet. You gotta keep fighting. We are not done yet. Long as our body has a breath. We are not done yet. And I got to tell you, I have talked to so many people just in the last couple of weeks of people that have honestly been part of the Great Resonation have quit and have come in and volunteered with us full time. Mm-hmm. And that's not the way to answer for everybody. But I will tell you, living a life of purpose is different than living a life to make a living, do all these great things, put your kids through school and put, provide a great house. That's wonderful. And that's a great thing. But it's not mutually exclusive for living in purpose. And so we are so fortunate in our field of work that we can live that out so much easier than so many other professions. So really grasp onto that. And they need us right now because scams and fraud and money laundering and all the bad actors are taking all the free money that we can give and doing some evil things. Thank you, Mark, Andrew, and Courtney for letting me be here and share time with you. It has been a privilege and an honor. So thank you. Loved it. So inspiring. Yeah. Great way to end the day. Thank you. Ian, thank you. I, uh, I look forward to more conversations and more learning. There's no way we could just end here. Uh, For those who are wondering how to apply this and what to think, my closing thought for everybody, uh, not that I really have a good one right now, I'm still still taken aback, is you are not done yet. Whatever you're doing right now, if you feel like you're just in a grind or or, or in a, this is like the fourth time on this podcast, we basically had church. I mean, it's like an altar (laughs) call or something, but it's like that, right? We're in the job that we're in to either just kick along or to translate that into a higher purpose. And what you're saying is you don't have to leave your job. You don't have to make a career change. You can, but if you start living with purpose today, there's plenty of things to do. Human crimes, fighting that, one that we can all start with. And uh, I know I'm motivated to, to get started on that. I'm looking forward to learning more about the noble and how to get involved. Thanks for inspiring us, Ian. And uh, we look forward to watching what you do very closely and being supportive and telling others. Thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm.